thank you for tuning in to Faith Worship Center's weekly sermon. We hope you are inspired and encouraged by this week's message as we all live to bring more of heaven to earth. Good morning. Hey, go Celtics. <laughs> uh, I'm not patronizing you. Um, when I was a teenager, that was my team back in the days of John Havlicek and uh, some of the younger people here have no clue who I'm talking about. That's a Hall of Famer. Um, so uh, we would like for you to pray for us after we leave here to get to the airport because I understand that there's a pretty good crowd going to be showing up at the gardens, which I'm heading that direction shortly. It's been great to be with you this weekend and I want to get right to what I came to talk to you about this morning. And I'd ask you if you would to turn to the gospel according to Isaiah. And I, I do that intentionally. Sometimes there is this tendency for people to think that the gospels are confined to the four that we have in the New Testament. In reality, there is just as much of the gospel message in this particular prophet's um, book as any of the four. And uh, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 45, and I'll join you there in just a few minutes. Isaiah chapter 45. I've, I read recently that the human head weighs between 5 and 11 pounds. Startling, isn't it? And many of us, we've almost been conditioned to do this. We walk around most of the day with our head tilted toward a smartphone. And research shows that when you do that for extended periods of time, it's e the equivalent of putting a 60-pound weight on your neck. Now, you didn't need to come and hear that this morning, did you? But I do believe that looking up when most of our lives are looking down, both figuratively and literally, requires an awareness of the gravity of ne negativity uh, that we are all exposed to. The Bible has a lot to say about keeping your head up. You know, for example, in the Psalms, he says, my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. And in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is encouraging his disciples, when it seemed that calamity was on the horizon, he told them, lift up your head, for your redemption draws nigh. Again, both figuratively and literally, there is this gravity of negativity that is constantly weighing on us. If you've got a pulse, you're aware of that, right? It's just characteristic of the times that we're in. And I've come to understand more now than ever before that our minds can either be our enemy or our friend. Have you made that discovery? Usually when people talk about peace of mind, they don't really realize that speaking of peace of mind is essentially an oxymoron because the space in between our ears rarely ever experiences peace. 
If you are experiencing peace, I promise you, you are not in your mind. Now, I, I do believe what the Scripture teaches about peace, and, and it's replete, the references to peace from Genesis to Revelation and the importance of it, that peace is not the absence of problems. As many would think, peace is not the absence of problems at all. To me, peace has more to do with having a different perspective, engaging an alternative wisdom than what is dominating the narrative of our times. Again, mind and peace are conflicting terms. But peace of mind is probably the most overused and misused term when it comes to our happiness. Are you still with me so far? The mind, unlike our bodies, is always restless. It's always in motion. When you lie down tonight, your mind never ceases to be in motion, right? In the Buddhist community, they talk about something they refer to as the monkey mind. Have you ever heard that? And what they refer to is, when they, they talk about the monkey mind, is that our mind, it seems like, is filled with these raucous, loud, chattering monkeys that are swinging from one limb of thought to the other. Does anybody here recognize that? So what do we do in an environment like we're in right now? Because our mind has this propensity, doesn't it, to rehearse its fears, both real and imaginary. I mean, your mind recalls hurtful things that have happened in the past. I've said this here before, that all of us deal with this challenge of remembering the things we should forget and forgetting the things we should remember. It's just the way the mind works. And then we are always coming up with these what-if scenarios. Now, I know that probably doesn't apply to you, but share this content with someone else. I'm sure that it will be helpful to them. Peace, in unsettling, uncertain, and as many have said, unprecedented times, is a person. It's a perspective. It's seeing things as he sees them. Jesus said in John chapter 14 concerning peace that it was a part of our inheritance. You remember that? It's literally a part of our inheritance. And sometimes we don't really consider peace as being a part of what we've inherited. This is not something that we are going to experience in the sweet by and by. But this is something that is a present reality. That's the reason why Jesus, and he is essentially giving his last will and testament in John chapter 14. He says, my peace, remember this? My peace I leave with you. Not the kind of, this is the Passion Translation, which I have an affinity for. Not the kind of fragile peace given by the world but my perfect peace, don't yield to fear or be troubled in your hearts instead of, 
Instead, be courageous. So, I, you know, I want to emphasize again um, that peace is a part of our inheritance. It's not something that we're waiting to experience. It ought to be a present reality. Would you agree with that? So, I want to start out, as I often do, with um, some statements that potentially can be shocking, and that's necessary to shock us out of what we call reality, because most of what we call reality is not reality at all. It really isn't. It's real to you because of the way you have allowed yourself to almost walk through life as if you're sleepwalking. I, I recognize that it, so far it seems that I haven't lost anyone in the room. I don't, I see everyone's eyes. I don't see any eyelids right now. But I've said this in previous visits that just because your eyes are open does not necessarily mean that you are fully awake any more than the fact that you're sitting in that chair means that you are fully here. In just uh, a couple of hours or so, I'll be at Boston Logan Airport, very busy airport, and I will see people sleepwalking. I will see people in a comatose state. They know where their next connection is. They know where their gate is, but that still doesn't mean that they're fully present to the experience of life. Does that make sense to you? There is an awakening that is available to us And the scripture has a lot to say about living in an awakening. In fact, David said, I will be satisfied when I awaken in his likeness. Many of us, we don't live fully awake or fully present, do we? We're almost on autopilot to a great degree. The reason why I say all that is because What you believe about God is the most important thought you will ever have. What you believe about God. And I assure you that when you say you believe in God, what you're really saying is you believe your beliefs about God, not necessarily you believe in God. We all do that, don't we? We believe our beliefs about God. How many of you... Oh, in your evolution, in your spiritual formation over the years, you've come to understand that there were certain things that you were grossly, egregiously mistaken about concerning God, about his character, about his essence. You realize that you were wrong. You know, a lot of people will never, ever really learn anything because they understand everything too soon. They really don't understand the value of mystery. They really don't understand what we are going to begin to examine here from Isaiah chapter 45. But before I get there, I've got some more to say to you by way of introduction. There's no excuse for you if you haven't found the passage when I get ready to read it. There is a verse of Scripture that is probably the most uh, misinterpreted, misused, 
of all the sound bites of Paul's writings, and you'll understand the reason for that statement in a moment. Romans 8.28 is sort of the default setting of most believers, especially when we are mystified, stupefied by what is going on in our lives. For we know that all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. God's got this is a common phrase. God is in control. And all of that is true. But we have to be careful not to just reach for these proof texts in order to salve our pain. Because the verses that precede that, Romans 8.28, this well-known passage, for again, for we know all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. The verses that precede that talk about upheaval. They talk about trouble. Paul would say, I think it's in verse 15, for I consider not the sufferings of this present time to be worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And then he launches into this uh, language of describing how all of creation is chaotic in nature and it's groaning and it's in travail. Remember that? It's groaning and it's in travail. And not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves groan within ourselves as we are waiting in earnest expectation for the manifestation, not of the Son of God, but of the sons of God. He talks about groaning, he talks about travail, and all of that. But somehow, we have taken again 828 of Romans, and just sort of gone to it and not understood what precedes it. It's interesting to me, the word together there that he uses in the Greek is the same word that we use for synergy, And if you don't remember what the word synergy means, it has to do with how things are integrated. Uh, Let me just put it to you this way. Whatever is going on in your world right now, and many of us, we don't realize that we live in a very small world. We think our world is the world. We don't understand that you might have a story But your story is a part of our story, which is a part of something even bigger, which is the story. And if you get caught in your story, are you with me? If you get caught up in your story, obsessing over your story, you forget that it's a part of another story. That is a part of even a bigger story, which is the story. Now, I know, or I would like to think that most of the people in this room do not have this tendency toward obsessive thinking. There are no overthinkers here, are there? But do you ever think about the way you think and wonder why you think the way you think? You ever think about that? Really, do you ever think about the way you think and you wonder why do I think the way I think? And and you even think other people think the way you think. 
But that's just the way you think. So when he uses this word together, he's talking about synergy. And this, as difficult as this is for us, as challenging as this is for us, we have to come to terms with, and I heard this during the worship time, and it may sound extremely simple, but everything, everything belongs. And you don't have the prerogative to decide what doesn't belong and what does. Everything that is happening, it belongs. I mean, you know the probably one of the most uh, referenced verses uh, that Paul is, has given us about temptation. He says, there is no temptation taken you but what is common to man. But God is faithful and will not permit you to be tempted above what you are be able to bear, and he will make a way of escape. I think he makes a very clear point there that there is no temptation that takes hold of us that is not common, yet we tend to think it's uncommon. Come on now. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You're making me nervous. No, I'm just kidding. How many of you... um, have known the frustration of putting together a puzzle that's above your pay grade. Anybody? That's just really not my forte. I don't care for puzzles, even though my life sometimes seems like a puzzle. You know, it's uh, whenever God gives you a snapshot, a prophetic insight as to the potential of your future, To me, it's very much like what happens to you in impulse buying if you're a puzzle person and you're in a store and you see the glossy picture on the front of the box and it it, it so captivates you, whatever the landscape is, whatever the scene is, it it so captivates you and you, you forget at least a couple of things. You forget to even look to see how many pieces there are. Not only do you have this lapse in judgment, but you also forget that when you get home and you open the box, that what is inside of the box doesn't even remotely resemble what's on the outside of the box. But you forget that in the moment because impulsively you buy. I want that. In many ways, that's what God is forever doing to us. He is giving us these little snapshots into the future. And we forget the all things that work together for the good for them that love the Lord. And then you have the painstaking process of trying to understand this doesn't fit with what he revealed to me. Am I making sense to you? This just doesn't fit. I read about it uh, not long ago. One of the most complicated puzzles in the world is extremely complicated, not because of how many pieces it has. It only has a thousand pieces. In fact, the biggest puzzle in the world has a half million pieces. 
But this particular puzzle that I'm referring to that is considered the most complicated puzzle in all the world, and it only cost about 30 bucks from what I'm told. It's made by a Japanese manufacturer. The puzzle isn't difficult because it has so many pieces. That's not the reason. It's difficult because it consists, first of all, of just one color. It's black. Every single piece, all 1,000 pieces are black. To add to and exacerbate the issue, they are very small pieces that require the very nimblest of fingers to put it together. (laughs) Sounds like life, doesn't it? These micro-sized puzzle pieces are the world's smallest. How difficult is this puzzle? Well, one puzzle master or expert said it took him 17 months to complete just half of it. And this guy's an expert. Took him 17 months. (laughs) He went on to say that that this puzzle was Satan incarnate. Now, what does it have to do? And I'm going to get to Isaiah 45. Don't rush me. What does that have to do with what we've been talking about so far? Because so much of what we are dealing dealing with right now is so puzzling. And we do not understand, pardon the pun, but we do not understand that there is a synergy that is happening. This word together that Paul uses, all things work together. There's a synergy, no matter how dark it is. And this is something that we want to get to here in Isaiah chapter 45. But I just, you know, everywhere I go, it seems these days, I'm encountering people that are running on fumes. I mean, how many of you here this morning are honest enough to say that you're tired of trying to be stronger than you feel? Anybody, are you tired of trying to be stronger than you actually feel? I mean, emotional exhaustion is, is a feeling you have that's sometimes difficult to name. I mean, I talk to friends and family members and how are you? And, and you know, they, it, it's ambiguous. It's nebul- they don't know how to explain what it is they're feeling. Anybody else? That's the kind of fatigue that is difficult. It is puzzling. You're tired of being stronger than you feel. And you feel bad about not being able to do something about the situation that you have absolutely no control over. One of my favorite authors has summed up uh, this human experience in this way. He says, and I may, I may butcher it a bit, but <clears throat> you'll get, excuse me, you'll get the import of it. He says, first of all, life is hard. You're not as important as you think you are. And lastly, you're not going to get out of here alive. And I would add to that, so as a result... 
You should not live life as if it's a sexually transmitted disease. So, this is the state of affairs. This is where so many people find themselves today. And uh, that's why I chose this text for this morning. From the Gospel of Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Look at verse 3. I will give you the treasure of darkness. What kind of conundrum is that? The treasure of darkness. And the hordes or the hidden riches in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Glance down, if you will, at verse 7. An equally puzzling text. I form light and I create darkness. Really? I form light and I create darkness and I will make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Now, I don't know about you. I was raised in a religious environment that associated darkness. The connotation of darkness was always something deceptive, diabolical. Darkness, it was all, that was always the context of darkness. Correct? You know, if I say that I'm in the dark on something, I don't necessarily mean literally I'm in the dark. It means I'm ignorant to something. It means that there's something that I'm unaware of. And most believers have associated all darkness with evil, something diabolical, something deceptive. There's at least a hundred references in the scripture to darkness, but the verdict has, is unanimous for most people that darkness is bad news. But that's not the whole story in the Bible. I just read it to you there in Isaiah 45. I mean, when, in chapter one of the book of Genesis, Each of the days of creation are described in what way? They do not start with the morning and end with the evening, as is common to us in the rhythm of our life. This morning, I I love this part of being in New England. I was telling my wife last night on the phone, she does not share the same feelings about what I'm getting ready to tell you. I said, sweetheart, the sun rises up here before 6 o'clock. Now, where we live, further down in the mid-Atlantic, because we're kind of tucked back in, you know, in the United States, we don't get the sun as quickly as you do. And when I told her that, it was like, ugh. You know, she's not a morning person. I am. For the last two days, it's been wonderful to me for the sun to come bursting through the window of my hotel at 20 minutes till 6. Wonderful. Now, I drifted off there for a moment because you got me off the subject. But in Genesis, the rhythm of creation starts this way. It's the evening and the morning were the first day and so on. And the evening and the morning were the second day. That everything in God... Listen now, 
If we're going to see the treasures of the darkness, which by the way, I know that you are a presence-driven people. I understand that the presence of God is a priority, and I applaud you for that because I share that same sentiment. But have you ever considered when you look at the dedication of Solomon's temple in all of its grandeur? In 1 Kings chapter 8, I was reading again this morning. They had just dedicated this spectacular temple to the glory of God. And the glory of God, the presence of God descends upon it. And it is so thick and so weighty. The Hebrew word is kabod. There's so much weight to it that the priests couldn't even stand. They fainted because of the presence of God. And then Solomon would have the audacity to say that God dwells in thick darkness. Really? Maybe we've misunderstood the purpose of darkness. Maybe if you're in a dark place right now, you have wrongly interpreted it. Maybe what appears to be dismal right now, you have wrongly, you've looked at it wrong. You're not seeing it really for what it really is. That somewhere in here, there must be a treasure. I hope I'm encouraging somebody. Some of you look like you're in great need of it. So the new day does not begin with sunrise. It begins with sunset. So again, in the Jewish way of thinking, each new day begins with darkness. Wow. That just does not resonate with us. Each new day does not begin with the rising of the sun, but the setting of the sun. It begins with darkness. Oh, that's so counterintuitive. How could dark nights lead us to new dawns? And we've been in a pretty long night, haven't we? Not just in our culture, but globally. I believe that spiritual progress is first knowing, then unknowing, which leads to a new knowing. That's what all spiritual progress looks like. I'm going to give you an example of that in a minute. It starts with knowing, then unknowing, then a new knowing. When God called Abram, I'm sure you remember this well, it's get described to us not only in Genesis but in Hebrews. And uh, I find it interesting with each one of the patriarchs that are mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11 that whenever it references Abraham, it does not say that Abram by faith offered his son Isaac. It, says, it introduces his faith in this manner and says by faith Abram went out not knowing where he was going. Now, this is something that you might find interesting because of all the journeys that preceded Abram's, because, listen to this now, he is called out of the Ur of Chaldees, right? He's called out of Babylon, which even in that ancient world, it was the epicenter of technology. If you know anything about the history of Babylon, you can, you can read, even in this ancient civilization, some of the technology that they developed 
in many ways causes what we call technology today to pale in comparison compared to how primitive it was in that world. So he leaves this place where they have all these technological advances. When I, when I use the word technology, most of the time that just does not seem to fit with an ancient civilization. But it is true all the same. And so when God calls Abram and he goes out not knowing where he's going, all the journeys that are given to us prior to that in the scripture have everybody heading east toward the rising of the sun. But when God called Abram, he called him west toward the setting of the sun. He didn't call him toward a new day. He didn't give him a new calling, a new commission called him to walk by faith toward the rising of the sun, but toward the setting of the sun. And he is the example of our faith, isn't he? This is the man, this is a man that for many years became accustomed to ambiguity and uncertainty. And I think that many of us right now are very deep in that curriculum at this moment. Because for many years, I subscribed to the idea that the opposite of faith is doubt. When in reality, the opposite of faith I've come to embrace is certainty. The opposite of faith is not altogether doubt as much as it is certainty. And here we are. Our economy is uncertain. The political landscape is uncertain. Am I still talking to the right people? I mean, everything, everything. I mean, we don't know, you know, what's going to, I mean, this morning when I get up and I pick up my phone, there's something that's happened last night in Buffalo that is tragic. Some of you are aware of it. Some of you aren't. We don't know, do we? And most of these things, unfortunately, I mean, it's a two-edged sword we, we find out about in real time. I mean, I'm old enough to remember where events like this that would happening, that would happen that you wouldn't find out till a day or two later. So it's wonderful. It's almost, it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? To find out something that happens in real time on the other side of the world. But we are in these uncertain times and very much like Abram learning how to walk all over again. Some of you think you know how to walk. I mean, when you watch a toddler learning to walk, it's so precious, isn't it, to watch them learn how to walk because this is a whole new experience for them. And they're trying to find their center of gravity. You know, the older I get, the, more, the greater appreciation I have for balance. And the ability to walk. I never thought there would come a time that when I just simply stand up, okay, is everything all? (laughs) The younger people have no clue what I'm, it's coming. It's coming your way. Can I get a witness? But the truth is, at 75 years old, Abram is learning how to walk all over again. 
He's going to walk into uncertainty. He doesn't, he's walk, going, going into a land where they speak a different language. It's a different culture. It's different customs. You say, well, you're talking about a patriarch. You're talking about a man from centuries ago. No, I'm talking about where you are, where I am right now. Because we are learning again how to walk all over again. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Some of you think you know how to walk. Some of you think that, you know, up until now, you've been walking by faith and you've been walking, you know, in stride with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, everything goes dark and you're groping. You're groping. And why are you groping right now? Why are you trying to find meaning? Why are you trying to make sense of the senseless? It's because somewhere in all of that ambiguity and obscurity, there's a treasure. That's what the prophet was saying in Isaiah 45. Somewhere in all that, there is a treasure. Again, all the journeys in Genesis had been eastward up until this point, and now there's this significant shift moving Abram in the opposite direction of the light of the sun. And we don't like being led in darkness. We're desperate to know where we are. And how long it will take to get there. I'm sure you've heard the story of the young father that was trying to break his his, uh, five-year-old from asking, you know the question, when they get in the car. That he's going to hear on a three-hour road trip, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And he find, you know, he decides, I'm going to head him off at the pass. Preemptive strike here. Buckles him in the car and says to him, listen, don't you ask me that question. Because we're going, this ride, this journey is going to take a while. Don't ask me, are we there Yet, about 30 minutes into it, sure enough, he hears him from the back seat. Are we there yet? The young father reminded him. He says, listen, I told you not to ask me that question. Wait, he has no sense of time. Like my wife. I'm, I, oh, I, I can't believe I said that. Can we edit that out? I was, I'm being vulnerable with you here. I was unfortunately raised in the school of thought that you're only on time if you're early. But I'll leave that alone. Because I know some people are going to be late for their own funerals. Another hour goes by and he doesn't say anything. And all of, here he comes again. Are we there yet? He said, young man, he said, if you ask me again, I'm going to pull this car over. And it wasn't to give the kid a chance to stretch his legs, if you know what I mean. Some of you don't. That's fine. Let it go right over your head. Another hour goes by. He says, he hears him from the back seat again, but this time he says, Dad, 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 I'm not going to ask, are we there yet? I just want to know how old will I be when we get there? 
What are these hidden riches that he's talking about there in verse 3? Hidden riches of knowledge in this text are concealed. They're in protected places. In other words, to get to this knowledge, you will need a key card or an access code. You know, there are certain things in our culture that are a matter of private uh, or public record. In other words, anybody can access it. You familiar with you see what I'm talking about? I mean, you you have there in your hand something that gives you access to public information. But then there are other things that you cannot access unless you have a code, unless you have given to you something that gives you security clearance that proves that you have need of those documents, but also proves that you have the integrity to be entrusted to that knowledge. So some of this aimlessness, walking, learning, as Barbara Brown Taylor says, I love her book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. Some of these things that are be discovered, that are be uncovered. See, that, I think that changes our perspective entirely, doesn't it? Where we, we look at the times that we're in, and instead of it being dismal, instead of it being depressing, we come to the awareness, there's something out there waiting to be discovered, waiting to be recovered. Anybody. Yeah, that's, that's the approach I choose to take. That's the approach that you should choose to take, that there are hidden riches, treasures in these dark places. I mean, the first treasure that I want to talk about is just the presence of God itself. Now, what I'm getting ready to say to you will be challenging, and hopefully you'll think about it for more than just a minute. Maybe you'll ruminate on this later today. The perceived, and I put emphasis on the word perceived, the perceived absence of God's presence is actually proof of his presence. I put emphasis on the word perceived. Because you cannot not be in the presence of God. The most pervasive thing in the entire universe is the presence of God. But I don't feel it. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you feel the earth spinning right now at a thousand miles an hour tilted on its axis, spinning through space? Do you feel it? Does that make it any less real? I mean, think about that. We're moving right now. At a thou, over a thousand miles an hour, tilted on an axis, spinning around the sun. You don't feel it. Your perceived absence of God's presence is actually, actually proof of his presence. One of the treasures in the darkness right now is us beginning to understand in greater ways and in different ways the presence of God. Another treasure that I want to share with you that is discovered in the darkness 
is experiencing deliverances in ways that you have previously not experienced. One example among many is whenever we have the Exodus account given to us and Moses is leading millions of people overnight out of Egypt. And they come to the Red Sea. You remember the story well. If you haven't read it, you've probably seen the Ten Commandments, right? In Charlton Heston. (laughs) And he stands there. And see, we miss the context of it as he stands there on that rock and says, Fear not. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. Easy for him to say. Because in Exodus, because he's up on the front. He's the point man. He's up there on the front. What about the people at the very back? And they can hear the thundering hoofbeats of Pharaoh and his henchmen pounding, getting closer and closer and closer. And Moses, who didn't need GPS, he was all too familiar with that part of the wilderness because he'd spent 40 years in that wilderness prior to leading them out in the Exodus. And he knew where he'd led them in this canyon that had high, craggy walls. Read about it in Exodus chapter chapter 14. These high, unscalable, craggy walls that were very, very narrow. And he's squeezing two, three million people into this narrow space. And there's no way back because Pharaoh is in pursuit. There's no way over and out, up and out. They have to go forward. But in front of them is the Red Sea. And you can imagine by the, word, by the time that word traveled from Moses standing on the rock and he looks at the people in the, you know, the first few hundred and he says, Fear not! Stand still! And see the salvation of the Lord. And it rippled all the way back through hundreds of thousands of people to the people in the back. What's he saying? What did he say? He said, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Easy for him to say. Right? In actuality, I see that as a birthing because what he is doing is squeezing them through this narrow canal. And the water is about to break and he is going to birth them into a new place of deliverance. You're in a tight place right now? You say, what does that have to do with darkness? Read about it because it was extremely dark when this was going on. Maybe one of the treasures that is awaiting on us in the dark, dark places that we're in right now is a deliverance that is unprecedented, that is going to leave you stunned. How about that? How about looking at it that way? Rather than doubling up on your medication. (laughs) How about looking at it that way? This is another one of the treasures of the darkness. You know, the last one I'll leave you with which is very much related to the previous one, is the treasure of receiving new and fresh revelation. In these times of uncertainty, 
uh, the worship team can come now and join me. In these times of uncertainty, we are being given the gift of lunar spirituality. Lunar spirituality. Have you ever noticed that the sun pretty much looks the same every day? But the phases of the moon are constantly changing. And the sun, we know, has no light of its own. It's only reflecting the sun. But it's constantly going through phases, isn't it? Sometimes when you step out at night into this lunar spirituality and you look up and it's full and it lights up the night sky, even lights up your bedroom. And then sometimes you walk out at night and you can barely see it. It's a crescent. Sometimes it's waxing. Sometimes it's brilliant. There are treasures in the darkness, I'm convinced. And it seems like as we are learning to walk all over again, the direction that we're going in, if there's anything I'm certain of, is the ongoing uncertainty. And that's okay. We boast of saying, in God we trust. Really? In God we trust. Yes, we are learning to trust him even when we can't trace him. I trust his character. I don't need any explanations even though I'm always demanding them. But see, faith is not reasonable. But neither is reason faithful. So this morning, wherever you're at um, in your journey, he's going to play House of the Rising Sun. That's what I swear. That's what I heard those chords. And I thought, is he going to play some of our younger people don't even have a clue what that song is. The House of the Rising Sun. <laughs> ah, I love the levity. That's good. That's good. Have you had fun today? Yeah, you should. You should. Man. I refuse to let whatever is going on in the world, and I'm not by any means being flippant but I refuse to let what is going on in the world so take me hostage that I cannot experience what is my inheritance which is peace joy love even for the unlovable I refuse to let anybody decide who is my enemy? Because not even my God has an enemy. And some of you, that's a stretch. No, God doesn't really have any enemies. We assume that our enemies are God's enemies because we have made him in our image. You know, he made us 
in his image and we returned the favor and made him in ours. And we want him to hate and dislike people that we hate and dislike. And really what God is doing as he's leading you into those situations that sometimes seem dark, he's revealing to you something about you, not about the person that you have disdain for. Because the people in your life right now that are the most trying, the people in your life right now that are the most upsetting, they are the ones that have been sent into your life to teach you something that you could have learned in no other way. Amen. Don't you stand. And I, I don't want you to misunderstand. Uh, in the next few minutes, I, I'm going to have to leave rather hastily because remember what I told you? If you're on time, it's because you're early. And while I'm a Celtics fan, I don't care anything about getting in their traffic today. Listen, you guys have been so gracious to me as you always are. One of my favorite stops throughout the year. Yeah, yeah, and he, he said he, he loved me. What's not to love? I mean, you know, really. Yeah, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way it is. So we thank you, Father. We thank you that in this wonderful journey that you have us on, that right now it may seem that we are walking not toward the rising of the sun, but toward the setting of the sun. But there is... In the setting of the sun, a new dawn that is waiting on us and a treasure that we have not yet ever expected. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, visit faithworship.org.